KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program with your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parshat Vayera, Yudalad Mar Cheshvan. This week's Parsha, Parshat Vayera, uh, mentions for the first time Eretz Hamoria. And uh, since my eldest daughter's name is Moria, and she's going to be Ima Shel Shabbat today in Gan Chovah here on Alon Shvut, I thought I'd dedicate the program to her. We're going to get back to Eretz Moria and Har Moria, and specifically Akedat Yitzchak, because I think um, what needs to be discussed in thinking about Parshat Veira. Um, we have to think about moral dilemmas. I think the if there's a theme in the Parsha that pulls everything together, it's moral dilemmas and the dilemmas that Avraham faced and how he faced them and how we can learn from how he faced them. The, the Pasuk that really defines Avraham in this Parsha is a Pasuk that God says about him. In Perak. Yudchet pasuk yutet, Hashem says about Avraham, Ki edativ, leman asher yitzavet banav et beto acharav, v'shamru derech Adonai la'asot tzedakah u'mishpat. Leman havi Adonai al-Avraham, et asher diber alav. I know him, that he will command his sons and his house after him, that they will keep the way of Hashem to do justice and piety, this is Avraham. Avraham is a person of tzedakah u'mishpat. And within Avraham being a person of tzedakah u'mishpat, we have to try to understand how he deals with the different moral dilemma that he faces throughout the Parsha. The Parsha begins, of course, with the second bisorah, the second news that Avraham receives, and now Sarah receives as well, of the birth of Yitzchak, that Yitzchak is going to be born in a year. And I think maybe the, the, the tone of the Parsha in that sense is that Avraham, despite the odds, despite the fact that he's 100 and his wife is 90, they're going to have a son because he can give over the most fundamental tools of facing moral dilemmas. He's an ish of tzedakah mishpat, and he will give his children those tools, and for that he merits having a son who will be able to pass these tools down to a nation. If I could point out the moral dilemmas in the Parsha as I see them, I would point to four. The first is Avraham praying for stone. Abraham prays that Kadosh Baruch Hu should not destroy Stom and the, the cities in the area. The second dilemma Abraham faces, or at least I describe as a moral dilemma, I'm sure Abraham felt it was a dilemma as well, is when they went to Grar and they came to Avimelech's dwelling place. And once again, Abraham describes Sarah as his sister, as opposed to his wife. The last two dilemmas are parallel dilemmas. The one is Avraham sending Ishmael away 
And finally, the last and the dilemma par excellence, par excellence is Akedat Yitzchak. And Avraham facing the dilemma of offering his son as a sacrifice on the Mizbeach to God. Avraham Avinu is told by God that he is going to destroy Stone Vamora. And Abraham chooses to pray for the, the well-being of these people. We, we know the people of Sodom. We know them from the previous Parsha when the Torah points out that despite the fact that despite the fact that they were wicked and sinners, Lot chose to live with them. We find out more about them in their behavior towards Lot and the Malachim when they come to Sodom. And yet Abraham decides to pray on their behalf. Now on one level, as a reader, it seems apparent to me that God wanted Abraham to pray. Because he told him of the plan. He informed him. He gave him an opening. Uh, similar to when Hashem gives Moshe Rabbeinu an opening to pray for Am Yisrael, he says, I'm going to destroy them. Well, if he wanted to destroy them, he could just destroy them and not make big announcements about, about it. But he wanted to give Moshe an opening, and Moshe took the opening and in fact saved Am Yisrael. Here too, it seems that HaKadosh Baruch is giving Abraham an opening. Nonetheless, the question of, are these the right people to be praying for? Should this be done? Maybe God should be punishing them. Maybe this is the right thing. God does punish them. Why is Abraham intervening on their behalf? Not only is he intervening on their behalf, but he's throwing accusations at God, or perhaps accusations. Could it be that the judge of the entire world will not do justice? A question. I'm leaving it as a dilemma. What drove Avraham to pray to save these sinners? Would we pray to save sinners today as well? Should we be doing that? A question. I think the dilemmas go and become more severe as the Parsha goes on. Avraham has already in Parshat Lech Lecha when, going, when traveling to foreign lands, describes Sarah as his sister. Over there, there are different uh, attitudes in the, in the commentaries as to whether this was a proper behavior, and if it was a proper behavior, why it was a proper behavior. The Ramban says that Avraham sinned by calling Sarah his sister, and in fact endangering her as what eventually happened, that she would have to be the wife of Paro. Of course, we know that God interjected and saved Sarah from any being touched by Paro. But nonetheless, the danger existed. And, Abraham, and, and the Ramban says that Abraham sinned. Here too, he repeats this action. And the question, the dilemma that stands here is, Abraham sees himself as saving his life, his own life. If he 
if he doesn't say he's her sister, he, he will certainly or certainly run the risk of being killed as her husband. The Sforno suggests that Avraham didn't see himself as endangering Sarah at all. He thought that he would say he's her brother and then people would offer him money and he would go into negotiations with this person and that person and raising the ante for how much he would give away his sister for as, as a wife to a nobleman in Egypt. And eventually as the time would drag on and the negotiations would go on, he would leave. And this didn't happen, of course, and Paro immediately took Sarah. But that wasn't Avraham's intention. The Sforno becomes difficult because if Avraham thought that would work once, it didn't. So why did he try this again? Which leads us back to the initial dilemma, which is saving one's life at the risk of his wife having relations with another man. Now, in the Torah, I think we have, after we have halacha, after we have matan Torah, I think we have better tools for evaluating the situation. We have a concept of Yehareg Val Yavor about Gilu Yareot, for any adulterous relations, any any prohibited sexual relations that are, that, they're, that, that entail a, capital punishment, we say, we say you should be killed and you should not sin. Whether Avraham's life for Sarah sinning is the same concept here, I'm not sure. In any case, I think we have, a, we have tools to evaluate it. But Avraham had to evaluate this on his own. He didn't get an evuah from God as to what he should do. And the experience in Egypt, though negative in the sense that Sarah was taken... Avram saw that God interjected on his behalf. He brought a uh, plague to, to Paro. Paro sent him away with riches. So Avram walked away successful from there. So if Avram had a moral dilemma, the moral dilemma remains when he comes to Avimelech. But all he saw was that he put his faith in God and God saved him on the path that he chose. So he chose the same path again. The Ramban may still be right that Avraham, according to our way of evaluating the situation, indeed Avraham might have sinned. But Avraham didn't have the tools that we have. He didn't have Shulchan Aruch in front of him. And he had to evaluate his life versus his wife being given over to another man. And he chose his life. He thought that the sanctity of human life was more important than the sanctity of marriage and that's why he made that choice and he got confirmation for making the right decision by God protecting Sarah Sarah was not touched and Avram walked away with riches from Yitzrayim and similarly he will get that feedback from the story of Avimelech God interjects on Sarah's behalf and Avimelech doesn't touch Sarah and he gets riches from Avimelech so when we ask ourselves the same question in a couple of weeks, how, did, how does Yitzchak say that Rivka is his sister? He learned from his father. I think the moral dilemma still stands in its place. And I think, according to the tools that we have of Shulchan Aruch, even if it's not a precise halacha, but what we, what we glean from the Shulchan Aruch, 
is that Avraham, we wouldn't do the same thing that Avraham did. However, Avraham didn't have that, and he had to evaluate the moral dilemma on his own and make a decision. And at least in Avraham's case, he was protected by God. Because he made a decision for what he thought was the right thing to do. Finally, we come to what uh, people like to refer to as Akedat Yishmael and Akedat Yitzchak. Akedat Yitzchak, we know it's called Akedat Yitzchak, and then we have Akedat Yishmael. But the, the question we have to initially ask here is, what did Avraham think he was doing? Let me be clear and say that Avraham did not believe that he was sending Ishmael to his death, as he did when he was taking Yitzchak to Akedat Yitzchak. A, when God commands him to listen to Sarah and send Ishmael away, he says, God promises Avraham that this Ishmael will be a great nation. So Avraham does not fear for Ishmael's life as a result of sending him away from his home. Additionally, he sends them away with water and bread. Some might argue, is water and bread sufficient? Presumably, Avram thought it was sufficient. There's no indication that he sent them into starvation. The fact that they got lost in the desert was not Avraham's plan. There were roads from Eretz Canaan to Mitzrayim. It was a normal trade route. But Hagar got lost. And she got them lost in the desert. And as a result of that, they ran out of supplies. What was Avraham's test? Avraham had to send him away, however. And this was difficult for Avraham. Avraham. The idea of sending his son away, the idea of not letting Ishmael be part of the family. This, this was the test of Avraham, that he had to send his son away and not let him be, along with Yitzchak, part of the nation. This was, this was the disagreement between Sarah and Avraham. Avraham thought Ishmael should be part of the house. And she said, no, he's not, he's not the inheritor. Avram's dilemma here becomes easier because he gets confirmation from God as to what he's supposed to do. Should he send his son away? Shouldn't he let him grow up with Yitzchak and let there be two members of this new nation, two fathers founding this nation, Yishmael and Yitzchak together? How can he send his son away? Not only does he have to send his son away, but in order to give the message across to Ishmael that he's not inheriting Avraham, he sends him empty-handed. He sends him with provisions to survive, but nothing else. The dilemma for Avraham, at least, becomes easier because he gets confirmation from God that this is what he's supposed to do. Sorry, that's what Sarah said. Abraham says, uh, God says to Abraham, Shouldn't be bad in your eyes, do what Sarah tells you. And once God has told them, the moral dilemma has passed. 
The final moral dilemma, of course, is Akedat Yitzchak. And here, we don't even see Avraham having difficulty. The Midrash likes to draw up Avraham hemming and hawing, but the Psukim do not have that. There is no Vayera Beine Avraham Alodot Beno. And the reason is that the moral dilemma, or what we perceive as a moral dilemma, is initiated by God, where God commands him to slaughter Yitzchak. It's not like the previous one. By Ishmael, Sarah told Avraham to send him away, to send Ishmael away. Avraham wasn't sure if that was the right thing to do. And then God came and made Avraham's life easy and told him what to do. Here there's no dilemma to begin with. Here God tells Avraham what to do. And then there's no Vayera, and, just, and Avraham just goes and does it. We see a moral dilemma. Do you kill to listen to God's commandment? But there's no moral dilemma discussed in the Psukim. I think that what we have to walk away from Abraham is, is a twofold lesson in dealing with our moral dilemmas. In a place where what is demanded of us is clear, whether in the Torah or in Halacha, there is no moral dilemma. We have to be sure that it's clear. But as long as it's clear, there should not be a moral dilemma. Because if God tells us, speaking to us directly in Avram's case, or through the Torah, then what we have to do is clear. However, that's not always the situation. We don't always have a clear guidance from halakha as to what we're supposed to do. And in that sense, we have to go back to the beginning of the parsha and cultivate a personality of Avraham. A person who is a person of tzedakah and mishpat. And then we have to listen to our personality, that is, a person of tzedakah and mishpat, who's sensitive to the Torah values and sensitive to the Torah ideals, but understanding that there's not always an answer to each and every one of our questions in black and white, and we have to, after honing these ideas, try to come to decisions and make the right decisions. And that's what Abraham did. Did he always make the right decision? We don't know. The Ramban thinks not. But he went about making the decision in the right way. He honed a personality of Tzedakah Mishpat, and through this personality of Tzedakah Mishpat, he decided to pray for a stone. He decided to call Sarai's sister twice. I'm not advocating a pluralistic idea that as long as you are thinking for moral ideas, then whatever decision you make is right. As I said, the Ramban thinks that Abraham made the wrong decision. But he made the wrong decision under circumstances where nothing more could be expected of him. He didn't have a Shulchan Aruch. He had his personality of Tzedakah Mishpat to help him make the decision. And that's the decision that he made. We have to go in Abraham's path by listening to God when God's voice is clear. And in the absence of a clear voice from God, we have to hone our Tzedakah Mishpat within us to help us make the right decisions. At this point... In our program, we are privileged once again to have Rav Tavori, who will speak to us about a very special yard site in this upcoming week. 
that of the Chazon Ish, Rav Tavori. When Tetzayin Cheshvan is the yard site of one of the greatest Gedolim of the last century, the Chazon Ish. Amazingly enough, very few people will actually remember the name of the Chazon Ish. He is worldwide known as the Chazon Ish, but of course his real name is Harav Avram Yeshaya Karelitz. He was born in Chutzlaretz in 1878 in a town, Kosova, where his father was the Rav of Bezdin. He learned at home under the tutelage of his father, and as we've seen in many cases, many great Gedolim actually did not learn in the yeshiva environment, but rather grew in their own home family environment and in the local base medrash. According to the legend which is printed in many books about the Chazonish, at the age of Bar Mitzvah, when he was obviously a young child, the Chazon Ish proclaimed that he never wants to do anything in his life except learn Torah Lushma. He devoted his life from childhood to be a Torah scholar, learning Torah the rest of his life. He moved to Vilna, where he became a confidant and a consultant of Reb Chaim Ozer, the Rav of Vilna, which of course caused his fame to spread even more. The amazing point about the Chazon Ish is that he really did fulfill this desire of his from the age of Bar Mitzvah. He spent his entire le- life learning Torah Lishma. He had no official office. He became ne- never became a rabbi of a city or became a Rosh Yeshiva in any famous yeshiva. Simply, he became world-spread all over the world. His fame was spread because he was the Chazanish. He published Svarim anonymously at first, known as the Chazanish. Of course, the word Ish is the initials of Avram Yeshaya. And the Sefer became known and slowly but surely, the name of the author was revealed. And as we said, his fame became all over the world. When he moved to Israel, he consulted Rav Kook about the issues of Mitzvah Satkaliyas Baritz. We have some of the Ksavim, some of the writings that the Chazonish wrote to Rav Kook answered about questions of mitzvahs hatliyos the laws that apply to Eretz Yisrael. Unfortunately, there has been much debate and speculation about the attitude of the Chazon Ish to the to Rav Kook, and in general to Gedolim with whom he differed. Some say things that I would rather not repeat about the Chazon Ish's attitude toward Rav Kook and others. However, there seems to be no doubt 
that although the Chazon Ish certainly did not agree with the Zionistic perspectives of Rav Kook, he certainly did respect him as a Tamid Chacham and as a Gadol. The Chazon Ish was consulted on many, many different issues. His home in Bnei Brak became the focal point for visitors to come to ask questions about all related topics. It seems that he had a tremendous knowledge of fields not necessarily associated directly with Tamil Chachamim who learned the world of Halacha. It seems that he knew medicine, astronomy, agriculture very well. People used to consult with him about medical issues and afterwards related that his knowledge of the medical issues seemed to be encyclopedic. His work on astronomy was well publicized when the great issue of Yom Tov Sheni in the Far Eastern countries occurred. When the Mir Yeshiva went to Japan, to China, after in the aftermath of the Second World War, after the Holocaust, and they found refuge within those countries, the big issue was made over people who passed the international dateline when they would keep Yom Kippur, when they would keep Shabbos. The Chazon Ish wrote a famous treatise about this topic, and in which, of course, he exhibited great knowledge and erudition about Hilchos Kirshachodesh, the typical laws of Kirshachodesh, but he also showed that he was well-versed in, in the phenomena of the world which are important in order to paskin such a shaila. His personal life was rather tragic. He had no children, and his marital situation was complicated at best. However, this did not deter him from spending his whole life devoted to Torah. He lived in a home which was very, very simple in Bnei Brak. Many people have related the story, not necessarily associated with the Chazonish, of a visit that they made to the house of a Gadol, who basically lived in a very simple, unpretentious house with very little furniture. When they asked the Balabas, the, this Rav, who lived in such a situation, why did he live there? So his answer was, to you, to the person who asked him, who perhaps was a very rich man visiting from America, and he would ask him, where's your furniture? He, his answer be, would be, I'm traveling, I don't have my house, I don't have my furniture with me, you can only travel with what you, you know, one or two suitcases. Because then he said, we're all travelers in this world. There's no reason to build a house of permanence, of beauty, of opulence, because basically we're all traveling in this world. I had a good friend who lived in Los Angeles who was so influenced by this that he himself decided to live a life of simplicity, of absolute simplicity, although he himself was rather rather wealthy, but you could not tell it at all in his house. He told me that one visit to the Chazan Ish changed his whole attitude toward worldly possessions. The Chazan Ish was consulted, as I said, on many issues. I'd like to refer to two specific types of issues. Educational issues were brought to the Chazan Ish Al-Yamin Vasmol. All questions of educational issues were brought. And 
The Chazon Ish, besides writing this magnum op- opus of the Chazon Ish, expressed many of his philosophic ideas, his thoughts specifically concerning education, in a little volume of thought published by the Chazon Ish. It's a beauty in Hebrew. The language is beautiful. And of course the ideas are appropriate and un- uh, to the life and philosophy of the Chazonish. In educational issues, I taught in Midrashiat Noam in Padishana. That is the Yeshiva High School, which was founded in the early 40s. The Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Yogel, used to consult the Chazonish regularly on issues to do with beginning a new Yeshiva. For example, in order for the Yeshiva to be approved by the Misrat HaChinuch, by the Department of Education, it had to have a course in literature. And the Chazonish was consulted what literature is considered proper for yeshiva students to read, but it would have to be literature which would also meet the standards of the Misrat HaChinuch, of the Board of Education, which wasn't necessarily a religious board. Some solution was worked out, but interestingly enough, eventually, that little sefer of the Chazonish on Emunah Bitachon, that that article that or treatise that he wrote on belief and trust in God became approved as literature to be used in the course of literature for Misrat Achinuch. Rav Yogel used to say how occasionally, not only did he consult the Chazonish, but he used to bring students to meet the Chazonish and discuss their particular issues with him. One of the main issues that occurred in those days was the responsibility of the institution to a student who was not doing well, to put it mildly. The question was, can you throw a student out of the yeshiva? The issue itself had more than one ramification. One was for the student himself. The student in question, if he had been thrown out of the yeshiva, obviously would have had a problem getting accepted to another yeshiva, and it would be very difficult to imagine what his future would be. On the other hand, the students in the yeshiva very often suffered somewhat, perhaps even physically, but certainly spiritually, from the fact that they have students within their class who were disruptive, who were problematic. And the question was, could these students be thrown out? Would they be considered, in a certain sense, like a a rodeif, like a person who is threatening other people spiritually, educationally? In general, the Chazonish ruled that you cannot throw out a student. And he felt that more work has to be invested in that student. Sometimes, from these type of students, we saw great results later on in life, and he really believed in key of work of these particular students. He used to quote a famous line in the Gemara, Kevan Sheikisha Chayavba. The Gemara is in another context completely. The Gemara discusses a Shomer, a guardian who accepts responsibility for an animal, and the Gemara says, once you accept the responsibility, you did an act which shows that you accept responsibility, Chayavba. Then you're responsible. In other words, the Chazoni said, in, you might not have to accept every student who applies to the yeshiva, but once you've accepted him, 
you are responsible for him and must take care of him. There were extreme cases where the Chazonish also agreed that this student should be removed from this particular yeshiva. In such a case, the Chazonish insisted that the Rosh Yeshiva himself, perhaps one of the Ramim as well, should take the student and learn with him privately before he's thrown out and continue that learning even after the student is thrown out in order to somehow alleviate the pain that this particular student would feel and to perhaps encourage him to continue in his Torah studies and not necessarily feel rejected by the entire yeshiva world. Another issue that the Chazonish was consulted about often was what we would call real politic. The Chazonish was consulted by the leaders of the Aguda at almost every important decision that they had to make. Rav Lawrence, the member of the Aguda, one of the leaders of the Aguda, Chaver Knesset, writes how he used to consult the Chazonish before any speech he made. And sometimes the Chazonish rejected his speech and told him to bury it, not use it because he felt it would not be beneficial in the long run. In this connection, the Chazanish was different than other Gedalim at the time. I'd like to relate a famous story that happened in the shear that Rav Salavechik gave for his uncle, Rav Velvel. After Rav Velvel, the Priske Rav, Hagan Rav Yitzchak Zev Salavechik, passed away, the Rav gave a special hesped for him in Yeshiva University. At that speech, he discussed his uncle as being an absolute Isha Emes, an absolute man of truth who had no sense of anything without with, that was not within the world of Torah. He had to find the values within the world of Torah, he had to find the issues within the world of Torah, and only then would he deal with it. So the Rav, Rav Salavechik, related that when the Brisker Rav was asked by Ben-Gurion if he would be willing for the Ben-Gurion to visit him to discuss national issues, the issue for, perhaps of uh, women's draft, drafting women, or other issues, the Biskirav refused to meet the Chazanish. I'm sorry, the Biskirav Chaz V'Shalom. The Biskirav refused to meet Ben-Gurion. He said, I don't want to talk to a Russia, a person with whom he considered beyond the pale of Judaism. So he said, I don't even want to meet with him. The Rav made the comment, my, my uncle was an Isha Emes and refused to, to see the, to see Ben-Gurion. Not so was the Chazonish. One person in the audience at that time felt that the Rav was somehow insulting the dignity of the Chazonish. And he called out, he said, you're insulting the dignity of the Chazonish. A certain tumult ensued and eventually uh, order was restored and the Rav continued with his speech. I don't think that the accusation was true in any sense. The Rav certainly did not want to insult the Chazonish. It could be that their style of learning was quite different. The Chazonish did not learn what we would call the Brisker method. But yet, as any other Gadol, the Rav respected Gedolim and certainly respected the Chazonish. The family even consulted the Chazonish on certain occasions. But the Rav just meant that his uncle was not involved in real politic. 
His uncle was a person who was only found within Arba Amashal Alacha within the world of Beis Medrash. The Chazonish had a different approach to life. The Chazonish's ap- approach to life was one of world involvement, but after he came to Bnei Brak, somehow that was the change of his life. Whereas before he came to Bnei Brak, the Chazonish was rather a quiet person who learned Torah Lishma. In Eretz Yisrael, as the uncrowned leader of Haredi Judaism, the Chazonish was consulted in many issues, including real politic, and felt he had to deal with it. Of course, some of the major decisions of the Chazonish still are held and propagated in Bnei Brak. The Shi'urim of the Chazonish, the issues of Shemitah, etc., are well known in Bnei Brak to follow the Chazonish. His Hashpa'ah, his influence, certainly did not die down with the Petira of the Chazonish in 1953. Fifty-four years ago, the man had passed away, and yet his influence in the world of Halacha is felt very strongly until this day. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori, for your enlightening words. The Chazonish certainly is someone who we can fit into the rubric of the ideas we spoke about today, about moral dilemmas. He was certainly a person of uh, moral fiber, um, and certainly he's another example for us to look at. We hope and pray that uh, Kadosh Baruch Hu doesn't challenge us with moral dilemmas, and we can make decisions... Uh, without facing being torn apart by a moral dilemma, certainly not the ones that Avraham Avinu had to face. But if we do face moral dilemmas, then hopefully some of them won't really be be dilemmas because we'll have a clear voice from God as to what we're supposed to do. But our challenge, of course, is that we hone our personalities and we cultivate ourselves as individuals and our children and our family members and whoever we can influence as people of Tzedakah Mishpat, so that we have the tools to make decisions when we have to make the decision on our own. Shabbat Shalom, and see you next week. Oh no.
ترا 